My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, June 16th, 2011. I'm tired. <laughs> it has been a long week uh, for reasons I am not really ready to discuss. My eyes are cross-eyed. And my allergies have been awful. And Claritin hasn't helped a bit. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you think biblically, help you think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And what it basically boils down to is that uh, people out there making claims about God, Christ, uh, doctrine, the Bible, and things like that, we, we like to, to say... Is that really what the Bible says? And we just open up our Bibles and we do the comparative work here. It doesn't, you know, we're no respecter of persons. And what I mean by that is, is it doesn't matter if the person making the claim is uh, the best-selling author of the twentieth uh, or the twenty-first century. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if they've got a mega church. It doesn't matter if uh, they're a small potatoes uh, uh, backwoods pastor from Pig's Breath, Nebraska. It doesn't matter. Uh, we are equal opportunity discernment service, and uh, we compare the, the, uh, some of the crazy things as well as the good things that are being said out there in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, yesterday uh, on the program, I announced that uh, last night I was uh, I interviewed Phil Johnson uh, of uh, the Pyromaniacs blog and Grace to You. That's John MacArthur's radio ministry. And uh, we were continuing our conversation uh, in, in debriefing uh, going through and stepping through and reviewing John Piper's uh, appreciative interview with uh, uh, with Rick Warren, and uh, so here here's the deal. Uh, Phil and I talked. We we, we spent three hours, three hours uh, uh, 
uh, recording uh, the next segments of uh, our interview, and we didn't quite get through with the whole thing, but we we figured we've uh, we've done enough. So what I'm going to do is uh, t- today I'm going to play for you part two of my conversation with Phil Johnson, and uh, tomorrow I'm going to play part three. I'm going to break I'm going to break up this three hour long conversation that I uh, recorded last night with Phil. I'm going to break it into two uh, pretty much equally equal sized pieces and uh, play them uh, today and tomorrow respectively. So um yeah, in fact I I don't think there I need to uh, say much else. It, um without any further ado, here is uh, my uh, continuing conversation with Phil Johnson. All right, back on the line I have uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog and also uh he, you're, you're like the head honcho over at Grace to you, aren't you? Well, yeah, yeah I'm the executive director. I I think you'd have to say John MacArthur's the head honcho because yeah he's yeah you run the you you yeah you you do the administrative work that's right I, I oversee the management team we've got a group of uh, eight or nine guys who really manage the ministry in a kind of hands-on way okay and, uh, yeah and uh, we're gonna we're gonna pick up where we left off and talk in uh, in kind of debriefing and uh, and evaluating John Piper's interview with Rick Warren. And I want everybody to know, even though you can't see this because this is radio, I'm Skyping with uh, with Phil Johnson, and apparently uh, the sun has melted his brain in Italy because he's actually wearing a Rick Warren-esque Hawaiian shirt. What is that about? I did that for you. <laughs> uh, you know, he doesn't wear Hawaiian shirts anymore. Yeah, no, I, I know he quit it, but, but still, it's hard for me even to... In, in my mind, when I picture a caricature of Rick Warren, he's always got the Hawaiian shirt. He'll always be dressed in a Hawaiian shirt in my mind. Yeah, I, I think he went to a Celebrate Recovery group to uh, get you know get over his <laughs> Hawaiian shirt addiction. So anyway, l- let me kind of set up where we left off. When we left off, uh, Piper and Warren were talking about eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. And Rick Warren laid out the things that he says are going to happen in heaven. And he, and one of the things he talked about was reassignment in heaven. And Piper, I don't think he really knows uh, Rick Warren's theology that well. Um, because uh, when Rick Warren talks about reassignment in heaven, there's a particular theology that he has that um, is, is ticking you know, under the hood here. And I think it's important... To uh, at least play a few of the relevant and cogent sound bites here, so that you understand what Rick Warren is talking about. Now, a few years ago, Rick Warren did a, ser- a sermon a- a series on time management and on money management and and some other stuff. And I'm going to play just a few of uh, the uh, of the lines here from Rick Warren, so that you understand when when he talks about reassignment in heaven. How how does God determine which how you're going to be reassigned? L- listen, and here's Rick Warren. You know, years ago when we started Saddleback, a group of us who were in our 20s, we went door to door for about 12 weeks and just talked to people and asked them, what's the biggest need in your life? The number one problem we found in South Orange County were financial tensions. People were having problems with managing their money. It is the number one cause of divorce in America, till debt do us part. Now, most people don't know that Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven or hell. In fact, one out of every six verses in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are about money management and about possessions. 
Half of Jesus' parables, half of all the stories Jesus told have to do with money investing and money management. Why? Because this area causes more tension than almost any other area of life. First, Jesus said money is a tool. And he tells the story of an employer who brings 10 employees in and he says, I'm going to give you all a set amount of money and then I want you to go and make it use useful. Now go invest it. Go do something with it. Put it to work. In fact, up here on the screen, the Bible tells us that Jesus said in, in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 13, the master called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minas. Now, in today's term, that's about three months wages. So he gives each of his employees about three months wages and he says, put this money to work until I come back. And he goes on and he tells the story. Now, this story is an analogy. Jesus says, one day I'm coming back on earth, and God has given some things to you that he wants you to use. He wants you to put it to work. Money is a tool to be used. And we're, tonight we're going to talk about how to use it in, in the way God intends. Second, money is a test. Now, money is a test for eternity, and God tests all kinds of things with the way you handle your money. He tests your character. He tests your values. Money tests your priorities. Money tests what you think is important. Money tests your responsibility, how trustworthy you are. It tests all kinds of things in your life. And God says, I'm going to give you a certain amount of money, and then I'm going to watch you and see what you do it. How much you trust me, how much I can trust you with what I give you, uh, how you live by certain principles. And we're going to test you in this because how I reward you and the roles that I give you and the responsibilities that I give you in eternity will be based on how you manage your money. Okay. Uh, have you ever heard anybody say that your responsibilities and roles in heaven are going to be determined based upon how you manage your money? No. Okay. That's what's ticking when Rick Warren talks about reassignment. This is what... This is what his theology is. Hmm. Let me continue. The Bible teaches this very clearly. We're going to look at it in, in just a minute. But follow me for just a second. Imagine this. Let's say this week you get a phone call from a billionaire. Uh, let's just make up a name. Let's call him Bill Gates. Okay? And let's say you get a call from Bill Gates, and Bill Gates says, I have decided to adopt you into my family. Now you're going, all right. And he says, as I thought about it, as my adopted child, I intend to one day give you my entire estate as your inheritance. I'm going to give you my entire fortune because you're my adopted child. But first, I'm going to test you in this because I don't know if you are responsible enough to handle $70 billion. So I'm going to put you through a little test. And if you pass that test and you're responsible, then I'm going to will the entire estate to you. Now, you can do whatever you want to with this money, but I have one rule. Here's the rule. I'm going to give you an amount much, 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 much smaller than the entire estate. And I want you to learn to live on less than I give you. That's the one condition. I want you to learn to live on less than I give you and take the, the other part of it and I want you to use it to help other people. And I'm going to watch and see if you know how to do this. And if you don't spend it all on yourself, 
but you learn to live on less and you use part of it to help others, then you will have passed the test and you're going to inherit the entire thing. Now, if Bill Gates called you up and said you that, a couple questions. Would that influence the way you spent your money? Oh, yeah. Yes, it would. Would it change the way you set financial goals? Oh, yes, it would. And would your goals probably be different than the financial goals of all your other neighbors if you knew that? Yes, they would be different. Well, friends, that is exactly what the Bible says God is doing with you right now. God says, I have adopted you into my family through Jesus Christ. You're now a child of God. And he says, one day I want to share everything I've got in the universe with you in heaven forever and ever and ever. And you're going to share it with me. But I don't know how well you can handle it. So while you're on earth, I'm going to test you to see how well you use what I do give you. Everything God gives you is a gift from God. You'd have, you wouldn't even be alive if, if God hadn't given you the gift of life. And God says, I expect you to make the most of what you've been given. And I'm going to watch you because I want to give it all to you. And I want you to share it with me for eternity as my child. But i got to see if you're trustworthy first. Have you ever heard anything like that, Phil? Well, it's a mishmash of, uh, you know, th things I've heard and things I haven't heard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Obviously, Christ had a lot to say about money. That's true. Yeah. And uh, he also uh, taught a lot about the stewardship of our resources, which isn't just about money. It's about our spiritual gifts and, and everything else that God gives us. And, I, and there was a hint of that in what Warren said, but the way he set it up, make it sound like it's, it's all about money. Yeah. And then in the punchline, he sounds like he's saying how you manage your money is going to determine whether you get to share heaven with Christ or not. Yeah, it, it, I, it, I, I, don't, it, I don't think that's what he's saying, but I wonder if he thinks there are, uh, you know, there's a view actually that some people hold that uh, there are Christians who are endowed with the rewards in heaven and other Christians who are uh, poverty-stricken and on the outside. In fact, uh, Jody Dillow wrote a book called The Reign of the Servant Kings mm -hmm. where he basically argued that when Jesus talked about outer darkness, he wasn't talking about hell, but Dillow says he's talking about a realm of heaven where uh, people are consigned to if they lose their reward. And right. it almost sounds like that's what... Uh, Rick Warren is teaching or, or a similar idea. Right. Now, let me let me play to, for you just a few seconds from the sermon from the week after the money sermon was preached. And it was a, and this is his intro to a, a sermon that he was doing on time management. And watch what he says to people who are new to the Christian faith. Listen to this. But God says, I put you on earth and I have entrusted into you certain gifts. I give you time. I give you money, I give you possessions, I give you abilities, I give you relationships, I give you intelligence, I give you freedom. Everything you have in life is a gift from God. And God says that is a trust. He has entrusted it to you. And God says during your lifetime on earth, I'm going to test you. And I'm going to see how you use responsibly the gifts that I put into your life. Your time, your money, your talents, your energy your contacts, everything. Because life is a test. Now some of you are actually getting into this test a little late. 
And so you got some making up to do. And you didn't realize that life was a test. And so now, in the later stage of your life, you've got to make the most of what you've got because God says he's watching. And he says that your rewards in heaven, you're going to be given rewards in heaven, your roles in heaven, we're all going to do different things in heaven, you're not just going to sit around, and your responsibilities in heaven will be determined by how well you managed what God put in your hands here on earth. Now last week we looked at managing your money and how that is an important test of are you responsible and it has far implications on what you'll be doing in heaven. Yeah, and then, you know he goes on to explain that week that uh, you know time management is another part of this test. So when Rick Warren talks about reassignment in heaven, there's a whole theology that goes along with this. That if you if you uh, if you're familiar with his sermons and how he preaches, he's constantly basically saying you know you know it's the difference between being a dog catcher in heaven or you know a, a provincial governor. I mean, depending on how well you manage your time and your finances. Yeah, the thief on the cross is sunk, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, but uh, if Rick Warren's theology is correct, uh, what sort of reassignment does he get? Um, I'm pretty sure he's probably going to live in a shanty town um, just on the south side of the tracks outside of Jerusalem. You know, it's, he, he obviously didn't have a chance to you know, properly manage his time and his money. He did, And here's the other thing is, is that 2,000 years ago, they didn't even have a Franklin Covey system where you can, you know, you can do day planning. And, uh, and so, you know, he didn't have an opportunity to, uh, you know, to really ascend in the ranks. And so I'm sure he'll be given a cardboard box and a sleeping bag when he gets to paradise. Now, that's the first I've heard any portion of those sermons. Does, does, uh, does Warren deal with the parable Jesus told about the workers in the field, you know, some of them start early in the day, others come late in the day, and at the end of the day, they all get paid the same reward? Yeah, that, I think if uh, that that might mess up this theology, so I, I've never heard him uh, handle that particular text. Um, but it, I'd be, I'd be Because it's interesting, that, that the whole point of that text seems to contradict pretty much everything Rick Warren was saying in that last... Uh, Right, that last excerpt you played. And what's interesting to me also is is that uh, it's it's a 21st century American suburbanite set of uh, uh, a list of things to do that uh, become the thing that determines how you pa- pass the test, rather than the Ten Commandments. I mean, uh, it's it's as if you know the Americanized evangelical gospel of the seeker drivenites is based upon. I'm going to be tested based upon whether or not I was in debt, whether or not I properly managed my time, um, how fulfilling my, I was in my career, you know, all, all these kind of these list of things. That, yuppie priorities. Right, yuppie priorities. Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of stuff, but as a, rather than the Ten Commandments. So anyway, I wanted to put that in the front end of, our, of today's discussion because when Rick Warren, you know, when we left off, he was talking about reassignment. And you know, I, I think it was completely lost on Piper what Rick Warren's uh, theology is regarding reassignment. The reassignment is based upon how well you, uh, you uh, dealt with the, uh, the, uh, your, your yuppie uh, middle-class life. Yeah, when, when Warren used that word reassignment, uh, it perked up my ears. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about either, so I don't, I don't fault Piper if that went past him. It kind of went past me, and I thought... Did, did he just throw that in there for alliteration's sake? And what does it mean? He he barely explained it. Right. Uh, but 
Yeah, so I thought it would be worthwhile to you know to go into my Rick Warren archives and in my Rick Warren database to you know to kind of pull you know flesh that out. Now let's continue with the Piper Warren interview, and of course you can you know send up a flare, of, you know, wave your Hawaiian shirt around or whatever if you want me to stop. Um, <laughs> you know, I looked this up after I got back from Italy and realized that uh, although we spent like two and a half hours going through that, we're not halfway through this thing. No, we're not. And you know, it, it, we we just talk too much, and I want I want to make sure that we unpack this properly. But <clears throat> and, all right, go for it. All right, here we go. Thing that you kind of leave open whether we wind up on the new new Earth. I do, I do. I, I honestly haven't studied it. Okay. I, I have not studied it as deeply as as I should because uh, you know it's a trite to say that you know like on the second coming. I, I'm not on the time and place. I'm on the on the welcome committee, yeah. and, and really, I, I need to explain this to to people who will watch this, because I've taken some hits for some of the things I've said seem to devalue prophecy. Mm-hmm. Okay, and mm-hmm. I've taken a lot of criticism on that, and I make my statements on the basis of two statements of Jesus. First, Jesus says in Matthew 25, "No man knows the day nor the hour, mm-hmm. neither the angels nor the Son." Mm-hmm but only the Father which is in heaven. Now, if Jesus didn't know when he's coming back, I'm, I'm crazy for me to try to think. Jesus himself in that scripture, only the Father which is in heaven. So you, you don't think that, say, the peace plan or the, the labors to, to make life better here is going to be a continuity of improvement that goes into a kingdom. Oh, I'm definitely not post-millennial. No, and I do not believe in bringing in the kingdom. No, I, I, that's reassuring. I'm glad he's not post-millennial. Yeah, as am I. But I thought it was interesting that he, he threw that in there. Piper was uh, was asking him just specifically, uh, you know, whether he thought there'd be a continuity of improvement. He was asking him, are you post-millennial? Right. And, uh, and Rick Warren jumped on the word, which I thought was interesting for somebody who uh, takes pride in his ability to teach sanctification without mentioning the word sanctification mm-hmm. or to talk about repentance without ever mentioning... You know, he calls he calls repentance. Uh, I think we're about to get to this part where he calls repentance a paradigm shift. Yeah. Uh, but it but it'll jump on a term like post millennial, which has pretty strong theological overtones. And uh, I, there's a, there's that inconsistency in pipe in uh, in Warren. Does he does he really want to speak about theology in theological terms or not? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's an important thing to, to sort of watch as we go through this, because he keeps coming back to the fact that he likes to teach theology without using theological terms. Right. He, I mean, feels, it, it he sounds, feels he can cover the idea of propitiation without ever actually talking about propitiation. It sounds to me like a mechanic trying to, say, you know, trying to you know, get excited about the fact that he's able to teach young mechanics how to fix engines without ever mentioning the word carburetor or spark plug or... Or yeah, that's it's, it's ridiculous. You, you could apply that to any discipline, you know, architecture or engineering or whatever. What would you think of a of a professor who said, "Oh, I try to teach my students these things without actually using the jargon of the field," you know? Right. It, I wouldn't want to study under someone like that, I, especially since uh, you know, we as Christians, you know, we're to we're to really be in God's word, and God's word has its own set of terminology. It has its own set of words that uh, that are not used in common everyday life experiences, but are 
that are used specifically for you know describing sound biblical doctrine and and what God has revealed about Himself. There's a whole vocabulary that's found in the Scriptures that we Christians are encouraged in God's Word to be in and to be embracing and understanding. That's right, and some of those words are precise. Propitiation is a good example, yep. and repentance is another one. Yep. And if you think you can substitute an alternative term, especially if you're choosing, you know, the jargon of a postmodern era, like substituting paradigm shift in place of repentance, if you think you can do that and and not obscure or change the meaning of what Scripture is actually teaching, uh, I think that's just dead wrong. And there are all sorts of pitfalls in trying to do that. Rick Warren's not the only one. By no means is he the only one today who engages in that kind of wordplay, and it's a dangerous game. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I wouldn't want to visit a physician that, uh, you know, tried to, you know, say, you know, we're going we're gonna to take a look at your health, Chris, but we're never going to use any of the real medical terms that have anything to do with your health. Yeah, instead of pancreatic cancer, you've got a boo-boo in your tummy. <laughs> Sounds deadly. Okay. Yeah, well, it wouldn't, wouldn't inspire confidence in that doctor. No, not at all. <laughs> Let's continue. Uh, by human means, and no sense of the matter. Mm-hmm. Now, I do believe that the kingdom of God is present wherever Jesus is king. Mm-hmm. That's my definition of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. If Jesus is king in heaven, then the kingdom of God is in heaven. If Jesus is king on uh, a reign on earth, then the kingdom of heaven is on earth. If Jesus is king in my heart, then the kingdom of God is, is in me. It's wherever Jesus is king. So I don't kid myself. Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. Mm-hmm. So our efforts to help the poor does not mean we're going to eradicate poverty. So it, it, the way the way you create an attractive heaven or future yeah. or eternity yeah. is by calling heaven a place because we're going to have new bodies. Absolutely. Right? Resurrected bodies. Resurrected bodies. Yeah. Jesus ate fish yep. after he was and resurrected. And walked the walls. So you're just, you're, you're taking it at least that far. We're going to have yeah. resurrection bodies. Yeah. Um, Lion will lay down with a lamb yep, yep, means... Yep. Well, uh, you, you, it, lion will lay down with a lamb. I don't have a problem with that. In I heaven? Could, yes. They go to heaven. Animals go to heaven? I, you know, I assume. I, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's one of the most questions I'm asked more often than anything else. Will my dog go to heaven? And I say, well, the lion will lay down with a lamb. <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> Somewhere. Okay. Somewhere. We'll yeah, leave it could it. be here on earth. We'll leave it. Okay. Let's go to the gospel. All this right. Is, this is the center. Mm-hmm. And, and even though you said yes. that you didn't... Um, write the book primarily for unbelievers, right. and you would write it differently if you knew right, so many right. millions would read it. Oh, Nevertheless, yes. I want to argue that the gospel is here, and I want to read it, All right. and, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about the, right. the nature of the gospel. Page 55. Uh, here, here, in order to have a gospel, we have to have some bad news to yeah, sure. be saved from. Sure. All sin at root is failing to give God glory. Right. It is loving anything else more than God. Right. I'm loving this. Idolatry. Okay? Refusing to bring glory to God is prideful rebellion, and it is the sin Mm -hmm. that caused Satan's fall and ours, Mm -hmm. too. Now, Mm -hmm. what's the good news over against that Mm -hmm. dreadful, sinful condition that we all bring? Uh, Page 294, what is the good news? The good news shows how God makes people right with himself, that it begins and ends with faith, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is the wonderful message he has given us to tell others. 
the good news is that when we trust Christ, when we trust God's grace to save us mm-hmm. through what Jesus did, right. our sins are forgiven. We get a purpose for living, and we are promised a future in heaven. Mm-hmm. When Jesus stretched his arms out wide on the cross, mm-hmm. he was saying, I love you this much. Mm-hmm. Or page 112, if God never did anything else for you, he would still deserve your continual praise for the rest of your life because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Mm-hmm. God's Son died for you. This is the greatest reason for worship. Or page 58. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is receive and believe. The Bible promises to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, Amen. John 1, 12, he gave the right to become the children of God. Believe God has chosen you to have a relationship with Jesus who died on the cross for you. Mm-hmm. Receive Jesus into your life as mm-hmm. your Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Friendship with God is possible only because of the grace of God and the sacrifice. Yes. Yeah. Now, it's hard to fault any of that. I mean, mm-hmm. pretty much everything he's reading there is correct. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to sound like a real nitpicker here. But uh, while everything there is correct, it's really not a sufficient explanation of the gospel from beginning to end. One of, one of the criticisms that has mm-hmm. often been leveled, I think rightly so, at uh, Rick Warren's book, The, the Purpose Driven Life, is that it gives such a superficial treatment of, uh, of the idea of sin. It barely yep. mentions sin at all. Yep. Piper just read, uh, John Piper just read maybe three or four quotations from the book about sin. And I, I think in doing that, he probably exhausted everything Rick Warren had ever had to say about sin. Yep. Uh, and, and, and while, again, what he said is true, you can't fault it, it really isn't sufficient. He doesn't give a biblical explanation of sin. It's true that at all at its root, sin fails to give glory to God. But the biblical definition of sin is that it's transgression of God's law. Yep. And he he manages to talk about sin without ever even mentioning the law or the offense that's caused to God by our sin. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't think he gets to the heart of what sin is. I, I think if you're an unbeliever who really doesn't even think you're sinful, or maybe it gives the sort of cursory, yeah, of course I'm sinful, we're all sinful, mm-hmm. that you often hear. A person like that is not going to be persuaded or informed by what Warren says about sin in that book, uh, of the true nature of sin. I wonder, what does the person really have to repent of? What does he have to grieve over? Right. In fact, uh, what what I've noticed uh, the, with Rick Warren as well as a bunch of his disciples who are church planters is that uh, a, a careful and honest discussion of what sin is biblically and how that puts us under the rightful wrath of God um, you know, it, it, that's never really discussed so that, you know, when you know, he's not really truly proclaiming biblically repentance and the forgiveness of sins, he's not giving us a clear explanation of what the bad news is so that we can understand the, the, the good news rightly. Instead, these guys actually sell the gospel as like an insurance salesperson sells insurance or somebody trying to sell a timeshare sells the, it, it it's using the whiffum technique what the what's in it for me you know it's like hey you know receive jesus and you'll have a you'll, your your sins are forgiven you'll have you'll have a future in heaven and you got a purpose for living now these are all with this is all sales whiffum talk 
You know, whereas uh, yeah. when you when you look at the uh, the book of Acts and how repentance and the forgiveness of sins is 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 presented by the apostles, the apostles confront people with their sin, confront people with their idolatry, confront people with their hard hearts, confront people with what they've done. The apostle Peter, I mean, for heaven's sakes, he told the crowd in Jerusalem that they were guilty of murdering the author of life. And he wasn't, he, Peter wasn't making some kind of appeal. If you want a purpose for your life, you know, then receive Jesus. Instead, he confronted them with their sin and they were cut to the quick by the Holy Spirit because Jesus said when he would send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and unbelief. I'm not hearing in Rick Warren's presentations ever a clear explanation of the law and our transgression against it so that people are convicted of their sin and their unbelief instead this it's all with them it's what's in it for me why should i why should i believe in jesus well your life will be a lot better if you do yeah and you know he does the same thing with the good news that he does to the bad news he he gives a such a superficial uh explanation of it uh, again john piper quotes several comments rick warren makes about christ's death on the cross but he, but he never really does explain the idea of propitiation. He doesn't no. explain what an atonement is. He doesn't he doesn't explain what it what it is that Christ's death accomplished for me. Right. If Christ died for my sin. Sure. What does that mean? I, and in fact, I can remember as an unbeliever, uh, even in as young as junior high school, I'd see somebody wrote graffiti. You know, Jesus died for your sins, and I'd think. Well, what does that mean? Because I didn't even do my sins until after Jesus was already dead. My sins couldn't have caused his death. And it wasn't really until somebody explained to me what, what the atonement means, that it, it's a sacrifice for sin, that he, he right. took the punishment for my sins. And, and he never really gets around to talking about punishment or the wrath of God or any of those sort of unpleasantries that, are, that he, he admits here are necessary to make the good news good. It's not good news unless there's some bad news for it to answer. But since right. he never really does any exposition of the bad news, the good news just doesn't sound all that good either. And, you know, I'd say it like this. What he says here is true. Like I said, it's hard to fault what he says, but it's not enough. I, I think he preaches uh, such a slimmed-down version of the gospel. There's not enough gospel here for the, for the non-elect to reject it. And right. My, my concern isn't that, you know, nobody's ever going to get saved hearing him preach. I think there's enough, you know, sometimes it takes, it takes just the barest uh, biblical truth to awaken a dead heart because the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Right. And, you know, in my own conversion, it was, it was uh, just one point of Scripture that, that convicted me and awakened me and sparked the, the first spark of faith in my heart. You don't have to hear a lot of the gospel in order to be saved. But my concern is that he's manufacturing just untold numbers of false conversions, people who respond to this sort of, you know, what's in it for me type message right. and think they're believers because they've given a positive response to this speech they heard, but they've never really grasped the beginning point of the gospel, which is conviction about our sin. Right. And in fact, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who's a pastor in Denver, uh, when he was an evangelical, uh, he actually sat down with a friend of his who was pretty well to do. I mean, he was uh, he was kind of on the lower end of the uh, of the upper you know class rather than the middle class. 
and basically said, you know, he, you, you need to you need Jesus in your life so that your life will be better. And the guy said, ah, why do I need Jesus? I mean, I, I, you know, I'm making you know, I, I'm pulling in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in salary. I've got a beautiful wife, great kids. I drive a great car. I'm a happy guy. Why do I need your Jesus? Because the whole presentation that was given to him is, is that Jesus is going to make his life better and supposedly, f- f- you know, fill that that empty void in his life. And the guy was saying, I don't have an empty void. I'm pretty happy, you know. And my friend said, well, I, I guess that, uh, you know, I, I kind of wish I had your life. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, if you don't understand the bad news, you don't, the good news doesn't make any sense. And, and I over and again, I see Christians adopting this kind of approach to the gospel. And it says if Jesus is supposed to, you know, connect them, the missing dots. But the, the reality is, is that if, if you you know, people who are living in the world are probably a lot happier than Christians because they they, they don't have to deal with uh, you know holiness and 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 you know wrestle with their sinful nature. They just you know they're pretty happy as as pagans. Yeah, yeah. Now Piper's about to elicit, uh, uh, or maybe maybe we've already passed this part, but at some point in this interview, Piper elicits a. Uh, an admission from Rick Warren that he does believe in the idea of propitiation. And I think he says enough to show that he understands the idea. Right. But the problem is you don't find it at all in his book. And and this is another place where I wish uh, John Piper had been able to ask or had, had been inclined to ask some challenging follow-up questions. If you believe in, in uh, propitiation, if you understand this is the heart of the gospel, this mm-hmm. is the, the center of the truth we're supposed to be preaching. Why doesn't it come out more? Right. And Why don't you explain this concept? And he, 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 he just doesn't. And see, here's the deal. It's one thing, you know, if you're sitting down in, you know, and you've said you know, the term you use is chameleonic. And, you know, I, I liken uh, Rick Warren to Bill Clinton. But, um, you know, if you could you get a jury of 12 people of his peers and find Rick Warren guilty based upon his preaching and teaching in other places that he believes these things I, yeah, in the la- in the last interview you played part of the uh, the TED talk that yeah. he gave in front of TED and uh, I, I was thinking about it there's another classic example of that same thing it was just last year when it was really at the peak of all this controversy about Piper uh, inviting Rick Warren to speak at Desiring God, and and I think a week or so after the the whole controversy broke, was Easter, and uh, last year Rick Warren held his Easter services at Angel Stadium. He mm-hmm. had two services. Supposedly the stadium was packed full. He had the was it the Jonas Brothers? Yeah, he had the some, Jonas Brothers. Uh, you know, they, they were headlining. Song. Yeah, and and he he told the story of the resurrection as if the point of it was. Making your broken dreams actually come true. That's right. He didn't explain the the significance of the resurrection of Christ. He didn't preach the gospel at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and my question is why, if if Rick Warren believes that propitiation is necessary, that the forgiveness of this of, of our sins is what the gospel is all about. If he really believed that in his heart, why wouldn't he preach that when he's in front of an audience of people that he knows are not believers? Right. Now, uh, back in uh, back in 2007, before the economy tanked, uh, you know, Saddleback had the funds that they uh, at Christmas time they had on Fox News. They played the Saddleback Christmas service 
on on the Fox News Channel. It was a you know it, you know I it, it must have cost a gazillion dollars to be able to do this. And um, you, you familiar with the the so called different theories of the atonement? Christus Victor. Uh, sure. You know the you know, all of the different uh, uh, atonement theories. Well, after uh, in two thousand in Christmas of two thousand seven, after Rick Warren, uh, you know, on this national broadcast where people were tuning in from all over the country. I mean, this high profile, uh, you know, church presentation about Christmas, and you know, and you know, the purpose of Christmas was the name of the thing. I, Rick Warren came up with his own theory of the atonement. And I call it the Mulligan theory of the atonement. Oh yes, I remember hearing excerpts from this. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a Christmas message. Yeah, no, on Fox News. On Fox News, they, I mean, they paid big bucks to uh, you know to do this. But let, I have, I, I have this. Listen in. At the very first Christmas, God gave the first Christmas gift His own Son. That's why we give gifts today. And the first gift that comes wrapped up in Jesus Christ is the gift of God's presence. He says, I will be with you. You will never be alone. You never need to be lonely. That's a choice. You can choose to focus in on God's presence with you. You might not always feel he's there, but he's there. The gift of God's presence. The second gift is the gift of God's pardon. And here's what God gives you. He says he gives you a second chance. Now that's an yeah, yeah, you're 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 cringing. I see you. I see the cringe on your face over Skype here. Yeah, yeah more of, more of a grimace than a cringe. Yeah, seriously, because a pardon and a second chance are not the same thing. No, they're not. Let's let's listen in a little bit more, and I, I want you to consider the implications of this gospel presentation on national, you know, on a national news uh, station. Here we go. Important one. God says, "I want to give you a second chance this Christmas." Now let me just take a little survey here at Christmas time. How many of you, knowing what you know now, if you could live your life over, you would probably do things a little differently? Can I see your hands? <laughs> All right. There's a word for those of you who didn't raise your hand. It's liar. Okay. Nobody bats a thousand. Nobody gets it right the first time. And we'd all like to have do-overs in our lives. Now, I have to admit, I am a terrible golfer. I mean, my hand-eye coordination is terrible. The only reason I play golf is for humility. Everybody needs something in their life they're just terrible at. And uh, I, I play golf just for humility. But I did learn an important word once I started learning golf. It is the word mulligan. <laughs> now, I like this word. If you don't know that word, it, it means that in golf, when you do a bad shot, you get a second chance. You get to do another shot. And they don't count the first one against you. I like that. <laughs> what if we had mulligans in every area of life? Financial mulligans, relational mulligans, health mulligans. Where you go, you know, I'd like to just do that one over. I'd like to take better care of myself, my body, my relationships. Did you know that God loves to give second chances? Did you know that he loves to give mulligans? It's why he sent Jesus Christ to earth at Christmas. In fact, the Bible says that before God created you, he already knew the worst things you'd do with your life. Oh, stop it. Stop <laughs> it. That's just painful to listen to. Well, I... uh, hey, you know, th this was national television, Christmas time, and literally, I mean, do you, have you played, do you play golf? No, because, uh, no. That, in fact, that's how I've managed to keep my relationship 
with John MacArthur so good all these years. He's never had to play golf with me. Oh, okay. I'm terrible. Okay, well, yeah. I, th- at one time, I, I actually I played golf for a while and was able to get down to a 12 handicap. But it, it's like having a second marriage, and I don't particularly, you know, you know. Anyway, it's it, it's expensive and time consuming and all that other kind of stuff. But a mulligan, I mean, it, it basically. It, let, let's say you're up on the first tee and you, you tee the ball up, and you, you 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 take the club back and you swing it. And let's say you you whiff it, but you kind of tap the ball, or it dribbles just you know a few feet in front of you. A mulligan allows you to do it over again. But here's the deal: you still have to do the shot. Exactly. And if you're as bad, well, in fact, if you understand the doctrine of sin, you would know that you could give a sinner infinite number of mulligans, and he right. will never get it right. Exactly. I mean, and because the law demands perfection. That's the see. This is where. His definition of sin is faulty, and he doesn't understand that, you know, sin is the transgression of the law, and the law demands absolute perfection, and there's no way you, a fallen sinner, will ever be able to achieve that. So so we're in a hopeless state. It's not like we need a do-over. We need someone to do it for us. Right. In fact, the the gospel is like this. This is using the golfing metaphor. Um, you know, if you would have to shoot a perfect round of golf, um, and, and in this case, it wouldn't be par. It would actually be 18. You'd have to shoot a score of 18. And, uh, you know, to, make, to, to explain how challenging this would be, you have to shoot a perfect score of 18 at Bethpage Black, which is one of the hardest courses on the planet, and you'd have to do it during a hurricane. Okay, that's how difficult we're talking about. And if you can't score a perfect score of 18 in golf under those conditions, you go to hell. And so the good news is that Jesus Christ shot that perfect round under those conditions, and he's giving you his card and saying, this is your score. That's the gospel. Not that you get a do-over and you've got to try it again until you get it right. That, that's not the gospel at all. Yeah. So it's just stunning. That is so that is so much a corruption of uh, of the whole idea of the gospel that it leaves me pretty much speechless. Right. And because it's obvious, it is obvious from uh, Piper's discussion with Warren that Warren understands theology a little bit better than that. Mm hmm. He's just I don't know if it's his his, uh, his sort of pathological superficiality or if he just flat doesn't really care and which is how he comes across frankly because of that chameleonic yeah uh nature that he'll pretty much reflect the beliefs of whoever he's talking to at the moment right and and which is a sign he really he really just doesn't seem to care that much about truth and that's what disturbs me about this whole thing to begin with. Right, exactly. It's not like there isn't a track record of all these bizarre things that Rick Warren has said that don't you can't square them with sound biblical doctrine, with a correct understanding of the gospel, a correct understanding of the law, a correct understanding of imputation, a correct understanding of any of this stuff. It, he, he knows the categories, but if he believes them and he thinks that this is Christianity, how come when he opens his mouth when he preaches and on national television and in other sp- uh, other places what de- what comes out of his mouth isn't isn't even remotely close to uh you know total depravity imputation of Christ's righteousness all of that kind of stuff it's not, it's not there it, in fact something the exact opposite is there
Okay, we're going to pause right there and uh, pay some bills. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? Tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. 
it's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Uh, Christ-centered uh, gospel Jesus. Uh, uh, well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. back warning uh, the mulligan theory of the atonement is not biblical just saying just a reminder fighting for the faith is listener supported radio and we truly do depend upon you and your generous gifts financial contributions in order to continue to bring fighting for the faith to you and to the world. We're currently in the process of trying to uh, solicit to enlist uh, uh, 350 new crew members. We are uh, well on our way to meeting our goal. We have about 180 left uh, that we uh, need to fill. Uh, that'll guarantee that we are able to meet, meet our budget month after month after month after month. So if you're not already a member of our crew, head on over to our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, click on the button that says Join Our Crew. It's $6.95 every month. And uh, we will send you uh, links to download our uh, our ebooks as they come available. This month's ebook that we're we've made available for our crew members is entitled uh, uh, Dr. Paul Kretzman's Popular Commentary in the Gospel According to Saint Matthew. Fantastic resource. It'll really truly give you an idea of w- what it looks like to have a sound, biblical, in-depth, exegetical work done on a particular book of the Bible, as opposed to the out-of-context uh, pick-and-choose verses. 
uh, and string them together for life tips stuff that's going on today in so many of today's pulpits. So, uh, of course, if you'd like to uh, make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, now we're going to continue with uh, my uh, my interview and conversation with Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog regarding his uh, uh, regarding uh, John Piper's interview of Rick Warren, uh, and uh, we're going to continue now without any further commercial breaks. Sacrifice of Jesus. Right. One more. Mm-hmm. The only thing that will matter at the judgment is: Did you accept what Jesus did for you? And did you learn to love and trust him? The dearest thing to the heart of God is the death of the Son of God. So now, here I am. I'm rejoicing and exulting in Mm -hmm. the orientation Mm -hmm. of the gospel on the cross, on the death of Jesus. You say, what Jesus did for you. Now, I assume that when you say you would do something more, what, what... Here's the more I'd like to hear a little more about is yeah, yeah. you don't describe actually what happened when he died. I don't. And Bingo. And so talk- bingo. I didn't explain justification. Uh, I didn't explain. Oh, bingo. He, uh, you know, Piper, Piper's got his finger on the problem there, that he says all of that about the cross and how precious it, how precious it is to God and, and how much at the heart of the gospel it is, but he never really explains what it is the cross accomplishes. He, right. he doesn't talk about propitiation. He doesn't talk about ransom from sin. He doesn't talk about expiation. He doesn't talk about any of the... And, I, and I'm not talking, again, about the vocabulary words. He doesn't explain those ideas in any terminology. Right. In fact, what I think is interesting is is that um, the way he describes the gospel is, is that whatever you bring with you theologically as your baggage, you kind of read it into what Rick Warren says so that, uh, you know, it, 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 even his presentation of the gospel, it, it, whatever, uh, whatever you bring to the table, it, it, uh, it applies itself in such a way he, he is, he said it in such a way you, your definitions get poured into what he said, even though they're not there. Right. I was thinking the same thing after hearing that the, the Mulligan theory of the atonement, it, it sort of puts a different spin on it when he says the only thing that will matter at the judgment is did you accept what Jesus did for you and learn to love and trust him? Right. Again, it seems to cast the the responsibility to uh, to perfect yourself back in your own lap. It's yep. is he making a statement there about works? Because he hasn't explained grace clearly enough mm-hmm. to make me understand that you know that's what he's talking about. Right. Okay, let's continue. Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That is salvation. I certainly believe in the imputed righteousness of God. Not imparted, but imputed. No, no doubt about it. Okay, he, he affirms it here. And I, yeah. would, and I would say, based on what he preached at Christmas in 2007, I, I, you know, I don't think he was teaching, he was preaching imputation there. He was uh, teaching something completely different. The Mulligan theory of the atonement is a completely different thing than the Im- imputed righteousness of Christ. That's right. In fact, it's, it's contradictory to it. So, Which uh, Rick Warren do we believe here then? Well, you remember we talked about the fact that he, he loves to, he, he seems to regard truth as inherently contradictory, and when he finds a contradiction, he just accepts both sides. Oh, okay. He, he, he might well say that, and in all seriousness, he might well say that about 
his theory of the atonement that, uh, okay, it may seem to contradict, um, the Mulligan theory may seem to contradict the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but I affirm both things. <laughs> the problem is, I don't, I don't, I've never heard him before, and, and, and of course I haven't listened exhaustively to all of his sermons, but uh, it doesn't come out in, in his books or when he talks about the gospel, when he preaches the gospel, for example, at his Easter service or his Christmas service, I have never heard him uh, talk about imputation. And, and even if he's just trying to avoid the word, I've never heard him explain the concept or even affirm the concept right. until right here. Yeah, this now, is he the... says this to John Piper. Yep. I'd be curious, maybe one of your listeners knows the answer to this. Is there another example of this in any other context where he's affirmed this truth? Now, there might be. I, personally, I haven't heard it, and I've I've listened to hundreds of Rick Warren sermons. I have never heard him affirm uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ prior to this, but that does not mean that it doesn't exist. It, it, it just, I may have missed it, but... Yeah, and I hope it exists. I, I, I'm, you know, I want to take him at his word that this is what he believes, but if he truly believes in the imputed righteousness of Christ, that that's the ground of our justification, that's what makes us right with God, mm-hmm. then he needs to repent of the mulligan theory of the atonement. Yeah, exactly. And, and he needs to he needs to denounce it. Uh, I don't know that he could buy time on Fox again, but he really, he really needs to yeah. recant that view in a forum nearly as large as the one he, yeah. he first proclaimed it in. I, I completely agree. We continue. That's a, let's jump in right there because one of my later pages was: yeah. Does it? Do you think it matters significantly mm-hmm. to to make that Roman Catholics would tend to say yeah. um, that justification is the impartation right, of yeah. righteousness, and, and right. Protestants have historically said right. it's the imputation it's of the, alien righteousness. Exactly. And you've just said that exactly. matters. Oh, absolutely, it matters. It's it's absolutely significant uh, to the matter. What I would do differently. Now, here we need a follow-up question. Yeah. How much does it matter? Because if, if, if to you, Mother Teresa is, is the paragon of Christian right. virtue, she's the example of what we all ought to be, then it can't possibly matter that much because she was clearly trying to earn her way to heaven through good works. And, and I don't know that she, well, in fact, I know that she didn't seem to believe in the exclusivity of Christ. And, right. And so... Why hold her up if if you really believe that the only ground of our justification is the imputed righteousness of Christ? Mm-hmm. Why hold up someone who didn't believe that as an example of uh, sort of the epitome of what Christians ought to be like? Right. No. I. That's. It's, and in fact, uh, early on, one of the big uh, bugaboos about uh, the purpose-driven uh, church conferences is that there were purpose-driven Catholics. There were purpose... In fact, there, you know, I, there was a, a, a story about per, Mormons who had showed up, and there were purpose-driven Mormons. I mean, yeah, over and again, you know, Rick Warren, he sells this kind of one-size-fits-all franchise turnkey solution for having a purpose-driven church, and it applies to uh, Catholics, to Muslims, to Jews, to Mormons, to Baptists, to Episcopalians, to Lutherans, to Presbyterians, and uh, and he he's ve- he's always been very publicly ecumenical, and I've never heard him say a, a, a negative word against Catholic doctrine. And my question is, is that you know, like your follow-up question is, if if it is important that there's a difference between the imputed righteousness of Christ versus the imparted 
as the way they're discussing it here. We, I think the better way to be talking about it is infused. But if there really is a, a, a difference and it matters, does that mean that those who have an incorrect understanding of the gospel uh, through the Roman Catholic Church, are they truly Christian? Yeah, and that's the that's the question. Does it matter? Yeah, everybody would agree that it matters. Mm-hmm. How much does it matter? Yeah, is it does it does it constitute uh, a different gospel as Paul as Paul said of the Judaizers in Galatians? Right. You know that that was a different gospel they were proclaiming, and and it had a lot in common. Let's be candid; it had a lot in common with the with the Roman Catholic notion of infused righteousness yep. and. Uh, and you know merit by merit through sacramental means and all of that. Right. Um, Paul not only called it a different gospel; he used the strongest language he used anywhere in the New Testament to to denounce it. Mm-hmm. He called it accursed, yeah. and by that he meant those those who who uh, devote their lives to the proclamation and defense of that kind of idea. He he didn't regard them as Christian brothers at all. Right. Yeah, and and read read the uh, documents coming out of the early years of the Reformation. Um, read read Martin Chemnitz's examination of the council uh, the Council of Trent. At Trent, the Catholic Church anathematized the gospel, and they anathematized those who believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. That was an anathema handed down in the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent. And when you read Chemnitz's four volumes on this, it's very clear that Catholicism held on to their false gospel and have and they've anathematized the true biblical gospel that we recovered during the, the time of the Reformation. Yeah, and, and the formulations of Trent are all affirmed expressly and emphatically affirmed in the latest catechism of the Catholic Church. Yep. So it's not as if the Church has changed or backed off its stance. The, the Roman Catholic Church regards what Protestants teach as a different gospel yep. as well. And and so uh, it's hard to see how you can just sort of blithely obscure that difference mm-hmm. and, and yet say, yes, it matters. Does it matter in the same sense that it's historically always mattered? Or what does he actually mean when he says it matters? If it matters, why doesn't he make more of it? Yeah, well... I I have my own ideas as to why Rick Warren won't make more of it because I you know you, you know you don't want to cut off a, a particular market segment uh, for you know for your knowledge based products that you're selling to uh, all these different kinds of churches you don't want to say something that would end up making it so that you have an entire market segment no longer purchase your uh, your, your wares but uh, <clears throat> that's just kind of a jaded view of mine. Yeah. Now bef- before you start this up, I want you to notice that. Uh uh, at just about the point where you stopped it, uh, Rick Warren is about to change the subject. He's going to say he thinks the real problem that critics jumped on in, in his book, those of us who've said the gospel's not there or it's not clear or, or he's muddled it, uh, he's going to say what, what we really had a problem with was they left certain words out of the prayer he wrote, uh, which is not true at all. My My chief objection is he doesn't deal with sin and redemption and the doctrine of justification by faith. He, right. he says nothing in the book about uh, imputed righteousness versus infused righteousness. Would have been a great concept for him to explain in that book, but he right. didn't do it. Right, exactly. And now he's going to deflect the subject away and say that really the critics are being kind of picayune because we're jumping on him because he left certain words out of the prayer. 
And um, it sounds like a straw man or a red herring to me. It's definitely a diversion. Yeah. Like, hang on. Was the prayer that I wrote in this thing? Because uh, I have taken shots where I said now, because I, I, I felt like I explained the cross. I even do a chapter on Jesus' suffering in in there. But when I come down, I said, believe and receive. And, and you say, I say, pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. Mm-hmm. Now, the basis of that prayer is simply John 1.12. Mm-hmm. To them, you know, he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who received him. And people have uh, uh, attacked me saying, wait a minute. There's no word. The word repentance is not in that prayer. Do I believe in repentance? Of course I believe in repentance. Repentance is the basic message of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Metanoia is the message of every one of the apostles. And I could take you from... Matthew to Revelation and show you how every single man preached repentance. Now, it's it's true that one of the things the critics have said is that he leaves the concept of repentance out, but not specifically that he leaves the word out of the prayer. It's that the, the book itself is devoid of any careful explanation of repentance. And it, it must mm-hmm. be, because he, he he's already skimmed so lightly over the issue of sin that there's really no, there's no reason to, to talk about repentance from the sort of sin he's described yeah there's there's no sorrow there's no contrition there's no remorse none none of that no shame really right exactly none of that is there and uh and you know it makes you wonder i mean what am i repenting of and what what definition of repentance is he working with here because yeah now yeah go ahead I just, I just don't want to get past what was a throwaway line for uh, Rick Warren. He said, he said uh, as he began to make this point about the prayer, he said, he said because I thought I, I really explained the cross. I even do a chapter on Jesus' suffering there. Yeah, That's another place where I think Piper should have maybe sort of pressed the point because Piper had just made the point that, you know, he, he read all those quotations about the cross and then he says, "You don't really explain the meaning of the cross." Right. And uh, and and in fact, his exact words were, "You don't explain what happened when he died." And Rick Warren's immediate answer was, "No, I don't. I don't." Right. Now it's just less than three minutes later. He's saying, "Well, I did a whole chapter on the cross, and I felt I explained that pretty well." I think the point has just gone right over his head. Yeah. That he's dealt with the cross as a sort of ethereal uh, cosmic idea. He hasn't really explained, again, the meaning of atonement and justification. And Piper asks him a question about justification. Warren gives enough of an answer to, to sort of reassure Piper and his constituency that he understands the concept. Mm-hmm. But he instantly then changes the subject and says, that, that really isn't the problem. The problem is I left this word out of the prayer. You know who, does the same, who uses the same type of technique? It's Rob Bell. If you've been following the coverage regarding Rob, you know, the controversy yeah. about Love Wins, Rob Bell uses this exact tactic. He says, well, people are saying that I didn't say this or that. Well, I wrote a whole chapter about that, and they, they just obviously haven't read the book. It's like, no, I've read the book, and you didn't explain it thoroughly in that chapter that you say claim, that you claim is explaining it. Yeah. The point of the tactic is to try to make all of his critics sound as picayune and senseless as possible. Right. As if there's there there can't possibly be any legitimacy to this complaint because I wrote a whole chapter about the cross. But he's he's just verbally conceded and Piper told him you you didn't really explain what happened when Jesus died. And, right. And and uh, Warren goes, "No, I don't. I didn't. I didn't." 
Mm. So he he acknowledges it on the one hand, but he denies the significance of it and tries to make the complaint sound like it's a dispute about words. You left this word out. Yeah. I don't know that anybody would would really be upset if, if he left the word repentance out if he had simply explained the concept. Right. And it, it technically it's possible to explain the concept without using the word, although that seems kind of silly. It is silly, and particularly when he says, and he acknowledges here, that metanoia was was at the heart of every preacher's message in the New Testament, from John the Baptist through the apostles. Yep. You know, repentance. That's what metanoia is the Greek word for that. Right. And so how, why, would you, why would you want to avoid the word right. if you acknowledge that that's, that's the heart of every faithful preacher in the New Testament? Right. And, and metanoia, the Greek word, means to change your mind. The question is, what am I changing my mind about? And, uh, you know, I, I think a, a simple explanation about the idea that basically saying God's in the right and I'm in the wrong. I am not good. I am a sinner. I have rebelled against God. I thought I was doing right, but God, God is right, not me. That's a, that's a simple explanation of metanoia that I don't think that's the definition he uses, though. Well, he calls it a paradigm shift. And he is going to emphasize that it, it involves a change of the mind. It does. And that's the derivation of the terminology. But when you look at the word in context, yeah. the way it's used in the New Testament, it means much more than just a, a change of mind like, oh, oh, okay, I got that wrong. It, it's a profound change in, in your entire, the way you look at sin and yourself yep. and God. It, it's such a profound change. It really doesn't do it justice in English to say, as people often do, well, it's merely a change of mind. Yeah, it merely a change of mind. I mean, you can't talk about it in those terms. Let's continue. That's right. right. Um, yeah, and, I, and I, I'm going to help you here. Cause okay. Don't you? I, I was reading it with that criticism in mind. Yeah, yeah. So let me read a couple of things, and you pick sure, up where you want to sure. read repentance. Sure. Okay, there, even though you 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 might say you, right. you'd say more, but it's not in the prayer. That's what they were looking for. Okay. 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 So red herring. Yeah. It's. it's yeah. I mean. who... Wow. It, that's what they were looking for, that, it, that the word should be in the prayer. See, he's insistent on that. And uh, I've read a, n- a number of critiques of the purpose-driven life and even wrote one myself. And I've never seen anybody, uh, you know, complain that the word about the wording of his prayer. Right. It, I mean, I mean, if, if we're going to get if we're going to get that technical, I mean, that kind of nitpicky, I mean, then we'd have to complain about the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, because the tax collector never said, "I repent." You know, all he said was, "Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner." That, but I mean, that that shows that he's been already been brought to repentance and sorrow for his sin, and that that kind of repentance is not what I'm seeing in Rick Warren's ideas. Anyway, let's continue. Uh, at any rate, yeah. here's the way you say def- you define repentance. Uh, to be like Christ, you must develop the mind of Christ. The New Testament calls the mental shift repentance, mm-hmm. which in Greek literally means to change your mind, to to repent when whenever you change the way you think by adopting how God thinks about yourself, about sin, about God, mm-hmm. about other people, life, your future, everything else, you take on a Christ's outlook. Or one yeah. more, yeah. Um, offering yourself to God is what worship is all about. This act of personal surrender is called many things, consecration, making mm-hmm. Jesus your Lord, taking up your cross, denying yourself, yielding your spirit. So what 
what, what I wrote here is missing was mm -hmm. the quotations of repent, the verb repent. Exactly. Wasn't there. You, you, you know that Christ, the Christian life is yeah. one. And, and, you know, what Piper just read, again, it's a, it's a, it's a choice quote. And, mm -hmm. and what Warren says there is right and it's good. In fact, it echoes some of the things we just said. Yeah. But that isn't the emphasis of the book. That's a that's a that's an unusual quote taken out of a book where that's really not the thrust of what he's talking about. Right. And and uh, you know to mention to mention self denial one time in a book that's really about self fulfillment. Right. Sort of doesn't do, just doesn't cut it. And that's been the complaint of the uh, uh, of the critics. It, it's not whether he uses ever uses the word sure you can find a place where he did but is that his emphasis does he really explain the concept well is mm -hmm. there is there a reason to to think that the average reader reading it is going to focus on this idea as opposed to you know right the, all the, the the stuff about self-fulfillment right are they are, are they going to come away from the book being completely undone and realize that they are they are a wretched sinner and that god is holy and just and can and, and should and ought to throw their carcass into hell you know and let's be fair someone might you know i'm glad he said these things that john piper just read because it's possible uh because the gospel is the power of god unto salvation and right. the holy spirit could could guide a reader to this point and and convict his heart and and all of that's great. I, I I'm not I'm not saying that I don't think anybody could read this book and and find enough enough gospel to be saved. My concern again is that there's not enough gospel for the non-elect to reject it. Mm -hmm. And so you're manufacturing false conversions. Right now, I just want to make a note here. You're dealing with a, a Calvinistic category, the non-elect. You know, yeah, but that's okay. We'll we'll save that for a different discussion on a different day. <laughs> okay. If I said reprobate, would that be better? Oh yeah, I like that word much okay. better. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Uncontinual con conformity of the mind. Right, right. Get it from this to this. Turn, right, turn, turn. Right, right. And repentance is everywhere in this book in that sense. Right. Yeah. And and uh, again, uh, the question I would ask the people. First place, I, some of the criticisms of people... He's not answering the question. He's kind of changing the subject again. Yeah, yeah, plus I, I'm just shaking my head at Piper's comment that uh, turn, 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 repentance is everywhere in this book in that sense. I, I think he's being a little over-generous there. I appreciate his generous spirit right. and his desire to think the best and all of that. But in, in an instance like this, I, I just I don't think that's helpful right. because... I don't think it correctly represents the flavor of the book. Right. And, 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 I, uh, and I think Rick Warren, by the fact that he he's not really answering the question, I, I think he's tacitly basically saying, yeah, the, 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 yeah not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's precisely what I read about it. There's several times in this whole interview where Piper says things like he just said a minute ago, you know, I want to try to help you here. Yeah, and he'll he'll try to sort of guide the discussion in a way that he thinks is going to answer some of the critics. And and uh, Rick Warren uh, frequently will sort of steer it back a different direction. He, either yeah. he doesn't get what uh, John Piper is trying to do or or he's just not comfortable with the conversation going that direction. He did it in the segment we listened to a couple weeks ago uh, where he was asking him about whether uh, – uh, Jonathan Edwards had been an influence in the writing of this book, and uh, you know his answer starts out with, 
oh, sure, yeah, but then he changed the subject right. completely. I, he never really answers the question with any kind of satisfactory answer. Right. It makes me wonder if, you know, I were sitting down, if I were doing a, 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 an appreciative critique with Rick Warren, and I said, Has, was Martin Luther an influence on, on, on this book? He'd probably say, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Martin, <laughs> profound influence. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's continue. People said, I happen to agree with. Yeah. I, well, you could have said more in, in explaining justification. I, I agree with that. But I wasn't writing it for non-believers. I was writing it to my church, who I already knew uh, were, were there. Now, I come back to my point that I made in our, in our first discussion. I mean, the, the, the purpose-driven life went into multiple reprints. At any time, you know, he could have called up the publisher and said, man, this is going out to a whole bunch of non-believers. We better shore up that one section so that people have a better understanding of justification. I mean, he could have done that. Yeah, and and the point I made, I would stress again as well, that uh, it, it, I think it's very revealing about Rick Warren's perspective on his role as a pastor and his philosophy of ministry that he figures... If you're talking to people who are already believers, they've mm-hmm. got justification wired, and you don't need to bring the subject up anymore. Yeah, you know, that's a great right. point. That, that's one of my big critiques about American evangelicalism is that they don't know how to make sense of the gospel once you've walked the aisle. It's like, yeah, it's yeah. Like, here's something you as a here's something you as a Lutheran I, I think will agree with. I would say that justification by faith is is not only the heart of the gospel, mm-hmm. it's in some ways the most important point of doctrine to get right. Y- right, which means we need to hear it constantly. Constantly. Every every sermon I try to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, if you're looking at Scripture through gospel lenses, you'll find there's hardly a passage where there, there's not some ramification of uh, justification very close to the text you're dealing with. Right, and then when you look at Paul's epistle, I mean, epistles, he constantly is re- reminding them and, and, like, fleshing out again what the gospel is, and he's writing to believers. You know, we don't we don't graduate from the gospel. It's like, ay, ay, ay. You know, so, you know, if if he was in the habit of preaching justification to his to believers as well as non-believers, there'd be no disconnect here because... Everybody saved and unsaved needs to be hearing the gospel. Yeah, that's a that's a great point and a great way to say it. We don't graduate from the gospel. In fact, I don't think even when we get to heaven, we're we're going to tire of hearing the gospel. Right. That's the thing I expect to celebrate in heaven and exactly. be talking about all the time. I, I just don't get the idea that just because you're talking to Christians, you you can sort of skim over or bypass important gospel truth. Right. In fact, wh- one of the things I see is is that I- the gospel is treated like like uh, the, the admission ticket into the fun park of uh, of good works that you're supposed to be doing. But you don't once once you're in the park, you don't need you don't need your admission ticket again. I mean, well, you know, and and Rick Warren's perspective on that, I think explains uh to a, to a very large degree why his teaching on stewardship, for example, is confusing to people like you and me. Right. Because when he starts to talk about stewardship and our rewards in heaven, the concepts of justification and imputed righteousness just don't figure into his thinking. And so he comes out sounding like a Pelagian or, yeah. you know, a, a Judaizer. Yeah. No, he, he, he sounds like both to me. So, you know. Okay, let's continue. But when I got, when I thought, oh, I better throw in a little bit on salvation, mm-hmm. and it really mm-hmm. came back as an afterthought and mm-hmm. kind of tossed it in. But I would question this. 
do you have to say certain words mm-hmm. in order to be saved? Because didn't get very far, did we? No, um, you know, the, the first sentence there, after you started it up, really sort of encapsulates this whole complaint. He says, but, but when I got, I thought, oh, I, I better throw in a little bit on salvation. And it really came back as an afterthought. And that's, those are his own words. Right. That, that is a stunning admission, yep. you know. After I wrote my book, I, I thought, well, I better throw in a little bit of the gospel. And, and so I did it as an afterthought. That's, that's his rationale for why he's not explaining justification very clearly or, or not at all. Right. Yeah. And it, it, far from excusing him, it seems to me that he has he simply condemned himself here. And for Piper to listen to that and not challenge it, yep. I find almost equally stunning because yeah. John Piper has has been one of the great defenders of justification by faith against some of the erosion that you have from N.T. Wright and the new perspective on yep. Paul. I, I love Piper's book on justification. Yep. It's it's superb. And and the defense he, he's done against uh, Wright's influence there is is invaluable. And so I know he's got all this in his head. How can John Piper sit there and listen to Rick Warren say, I tossed in the gospel as an afterthought, right. and not jump on that? Yeah, it just, you know, I think Piper, as well as a lot of other theologians, they're used to the open attack against the gospel. They're used to the person who's out on the battlefield waving their flag, basically saying, I don't believe this. It's a whole other animal when somebody just tacitly de-emphasizes it and you know, kind of moves it off of the center and over to the side and then doesn't discuss it very much. That is a far more difficult thing to pick up on than the person who, you know, like N.T. Wright, is challenging the imputed righteousness of Christ. And, yeah, uh, I think you're right about that. I, in fact, my guess is, it'd be, it'd be interesting to, to ask this question of Piper, uh, but my guess is if, if we asked him, he would say yeah, I, that he thinks there is a significant difference between the person who openly disavows and attacks the gospel and the person who uh, who simply neglects it. Right. But I would say, and 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 there is perhaps some truth in that. You know, I I, I don't hear Rick Warren disavowing the gospel, mm-hmm. but I think the word you used is the right one. It's still an attack on the gospel. Yep. To to preach and preach and preach and continually leave the gospel out or confuse it badly as he does with the mulligan theory of the atonement and and the the easter message at uh, angel stadium and all of those and the and the just ignore it completely when he talks to the ted group right uh to do that again and again and again is an attack on the gospel whether it's a deliberate attack or not i don't know right i i kind of suspect not 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 consciously deliberate and yet it's deliberate in the sense that this is part and parcel of Rick Warren's philosophy of ministry, and he's been challenged on it and corrected on it numerous times, and he rejects those corrections. And so in that sense, it, it is deliberate, and that's what leaves me utterly mystified about about John Piper's desire to sort of rescue or bail out John Piper from from the legitimate questions that his critics have raised about his teaching. Right, and you know, to, to to kind of put the best construction on on what's going on here, I I think John Piper, it, you know, he he defends his friends. I think uh, he's he has a friendship with Rick Warren, and um, he feels that Rick Warren has been uh, 
badly treated and and you know his the, some of the criticisms leveled against him haven't been fair and right and just and he i think in some sense he's he feels like he's trying to uh right a wrong or, or an injustice that has been uh done against rick warren but the problem is, it goes back to our first uh discussion on this he's lumped everybody into the same bin and there's no there's no gradation on uh, you know who's doing the critiquing and whether the critiquing is valid or not. Yeah, that was I think the most disturbing thing. It came right at the beginning of the uh, interview. The way uh, the most disturbing thing about Piper's stance was the way he pretty much gathered up every critic of uh, Rick Warren and, and threw us all into the same dustbin. Yeah. So. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. If you oh, do, oh, you know, yeah. Uh, actually, when I stopped you there, there were two sentences, and we talked about the first one. The, the second sentence, now he's changing the subject again. He says, but but I would question, this is where you stopped it, but I would question, do you have to say certain words in order to be saved? And so he's back to the red herring of, yeah. you know, his critics are saying you didn't use the right vocabulary. I, I don't know anybody who's made that criticism. Yeah, but, but like you said, the critics haven't made that. I mean, sure, I've criticized him for this this obsessive desire to teach theology without using any theological terms. I think that's folly. Right. But but it doesn't boil down to a question of what words he uses. It boils down to the question of is he really does he really uh, uh, sufficiently explain the doctrine of repentance or the mm-hmm. idea of repentance? Right. Uh, it, it comes down to. Uh, it, it, Okay, so what if you don't want to use the word repentance? Have you taught? Have you taught the concept rightly? Have you, you know, have, and have you given it appropriate stress? It, I think that's equally important. Yeah. You know, he could probably point to a. In fact, I think Piper read a phrase here where at least once he talks about turning from sin. Yeah, and 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 that's good. That's good insofar as it goes. But does it really receive the appropriate emphasis? Mm-hmm. And Rick Warren acknowledges that every preacher in the New Testament made that their focus yeah it, could he honestly say that's been the focus of his preaching yeah i mean uh, and that's what that's jesus's focus i mean you read the uh, gospels jesus would get into a town and he would proclaim repentance and the good news it was well, a matter of fact that was the first recorded word of the first sermon recorded in the new testament that jesus ever delivered yeah repent. it starts with that word repent yep same with John the Baptist. Yeah, and and see, and John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord by preaching repentance. All these sinners are coming to the waters of the Jordan and confessing their sins. So, I mean, it, it gives you some concept of what's going on here, uh, what was going on in the New Testament preaching. I just don't hear that same emphasis. So, let's continue. The thief on the cross wasn't saved, right. and I can give you a hundred other people in scriptures sure. because the thief on the cross simply said. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. Where's the repentance? Mm -hmm. He didn't ever say the word. And I could give you a hundred other examples. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, he didn't say the word, but... (laughs) But he repented. I mean, that's... Right. He, he was mocking Christ moments before, and uh, and he repented. I mean, it's clear from the the account that he repented. Exactly. I mean, oh, man. And he, he even rebukes the other guy and says, we're getting what we deserve. I mean, that shows you he's even sorrowful. Oh, anyway. Where Jesus says, believe in the Lord, or Paul, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if the say. root, I'm thinking of, of my good friend and John MacArthur, whom I love yeah. and esteem sure. and respect. 
behind his question or, or critique on that level might yeah. be, do you really believe that that in order to be saved, mm -hmm. to be regenerate, mm -hmm. there needs to be evidence of, of a changed life? Of course. Yeah, you know, I, I have to defend John MacArthur here. Because I, I think... I think Piper phrased that question a little bit inelegantly. Okay. And and MacArthur has been accused of saying that you have to change your life in order to be saved. Uh, what what yeah. John MacArthur has emphatically and repeatedly said is that that the the that the change in your life, the the fruits of repentance are just that, they're fruits. Right. They're not meritorious. You don't gain salvation by doing those works, but if if after you've professed to believe, your life remains the same as it was, devoid of any change, devoid of any works, you, you must examine yourself to see whether you're truly in the faith, whether your faith is genuine or not. So those works are evidences, they're fruits, uh, and proof that the faith is, is, is uh, genuine, you know, yeah. that it's living faith and not dead faith. Right. Even uh, the, Martin, way Piper, the way Piper phrased it, you know, if I were editing a book by John MacArthur, I would change the wording of that because a critic's going to seize that. And this is not what Piper meant. Right. But a critic would seize that and say, in order to be saved, to be regenerate, there needs to be evidence of a changed life. Like there has to be the changed life first. Right. And then your regeneration comes. That's not at all what John MacArthur has said. Yeah. And uh, it's not the point of the lordship controversy. But I just wanted to clarify that the language is kind of clunky there. Okay, well, and you would know. I you, you know John MacArthur, but probably better than anybody listening to this program. So, all right, we continue. Absolutely, uh, of course. You can't live like the devil. You can't yeah. believe like easy believism. You know, he wrote a whole book, The Gospel of Jesus. Exactly. Uh, right. What did you think of that book? I thought it was a great book. I thought it was a great book yeah. too, yeah. and and it got him into big trouble because it looked like you know it was yeah. making uh, salvation depend on works, yeah. when in fact it it was saying the I think right. that the fruit. Yeah of the new birth better be real. Yeah. You know, it's really funny because, for instance, Os Guinness wrote another book about the megachurch called Dining with the Devil, and some people thought that Oz was actually writing about Saddleback. People didn't realize Oz was on my staff. Okay. And... and yeah, it, it, it's kind of... I gotta, I gotta say this. Os Guinness lately has been uh, making the rounds and taking some pretty serious shots at the shallowness of the seeker-driven uh, megachurches and, uh, I mean, Rick Warren here basically sounds like he's trying to exempt himself from any of Oz's uh, uh, valid critiques. Yeah, and, you know, I have a copy of that book. And uh, according to the author info on the book itself, when Oz Guinness wrote that book, he was living in McLean, Virginia. So uh, he, he may have been on, on Rick Warren's staff prior to writing that book. That would be my guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, I've read that book. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty decent book. And uh, th there are a few things in there I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily agree totally with the way Oz Guinness says it, but for the most part, it's a, it's a, it's an excellent uh, sort of critique of the excesses of the big megachurches, right. and it reads like someone you know who's had an insider's view and just is sick of the merchandising and the, and the salesmanship that goes on in this sort of pragmatic environment. Right. And I, you know, I wonder. Oz Guinness is a nice guy. He's not gonna he's not gonna name Rick Warren in the book, especially if he was on his staff at one time. Right. But you, you got to wonder if subtly he was hoping Rick Warren would read the book and maybe take some advice from it. Because honestly, I have read that book, and if you read that book, you're gonna find it's absolutely incompatible 
with the philosophy of ministry that Rick Warren represents and that he advocates in his book, The Purpose Driven Church. Right. It's it it reads like a almost like an answer to the purpose driven church. Yeah, and, and the other thing is is that Oz Guinness, um, some, something about um, the British. Uh, mentality is is that they're they're not very fond of in your face polemics. Um, yeah, they're pathologically polite. Right, exactly. And so uh, you know, you I think you have to understand that about the culture that he grew up in, and that he you know if he has. By the way, that's that's not a criticism. I love the Brits for that. They would say that we, that you and I and and most Americans are are pathologically rude, that we're just a bunch of cowboys who never quite got out of that mode. Right. And there's probably some truth in that. Right. I learned all of my apologetic techniques from John Wayne. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I, no, it's, it, 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 there's, it, it's something that I run into that I have, you know, I, I'm learning to respect and at the same time I'm frustrated with it, but that's a, that's, I, that's a whole other topic for a different time. Yeah, by the way, that, that book by Os Guinness is, is called Dining with the Devil, but the subtitle is The Megachurch Movement mm-hmm. Flirts with Modernity. Yeah. So, so you know, he's talking about – you can't talk about the megachurch movement in America and, and exempt Rick Warren's church unless, unless if, if that was really what Os Guinness intended to do, he, he really needed to say so expressly that, you know, I'm not talking about – Rick Warren here, but he doesn't say that. In no, book. he doesn't exempt him at all. And, you know, I think it's a little bit odd for Warren. This is kind of a, a classic technique that Warren used. When I met with him personally, I, you know, I explained to uh, to Warren uh, how uh, before Walter Martin died, uh, he was instrumental in uh, in helping to guide me to uh, study apologetics uh, under Dr. Rod Rosenblatt at Christ College Irvine. And uh, it, Rick Warren's immediate response was, "Oh well, uh, Walter Martin was on staff here at Saddleback when we got started. He was uh, he was instrumental in helping us get going. And the way he said it, it was it was said in such a way that, well, if Walter Martin were alive today, he wouldn't be critiquing me. He'd be completely on board with everything I'm doing right now. You know, that's the way he kind of throws those things out. So, anyway, we continue. He wasn't talking about Saddleback, mm-hmm. and one of the problems is." When a church is large, it often gets lumped into other large churches. Mm-hmm. I could name some other well-known churches that we have nothing in common with, okay, in terms of our view of discipleship, mm-hmm. our view of salvation. The only thing we have in common is we both happen to be big. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would just say this. Now, I, this is just an insider critique here. Having attended a lot of purpose-driven type events and seeker-driven megachurch conferences, um, you know, I, 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 maybe it's time for him to basically say, well, um, I've got problems with the way uh, Hybels does things, or I have problems, I've got some serious issues with what Perry Noble and Stephen Furtick are doing. Because what happens is that these megachurches, these guys get together at these conferences, and they all pat each other on the back and, 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 and throw out how many numbers of people that they have showing up at their churches every week. And it's always the numbers, you know, quantity, 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 but never quality. And Rick Warren speaks at those conferences. He invites those guys to come speak at his conferences. I mean, we had we had Stephen Furtick at uh, speaking at Radicalis this year, and it's like, okay, well, you know, can you can you give me a, an honest critique of what's going wrong with some of the things that Furtick is doing or that Noble is doing? Because you all seem to be lockstep with each other, you know? Yeah. Well, again, this is a this is another place where I find myself thinking, 
if I were John Piper, I would have asked a follow-up question here. Because the obvious question is, who, who are you talking about here? Are you talking about the Stephen Furtick's and, right. and, and people in that genre? Or are you talking about hyper-charismatic megachurches or, or some of the you know televised, name-it-and-claim-it charismatic groups? Uh, specifically, what are you talking about? Because you know, I have no doubt that... Uh, I mean, what Rick Warren says is true. There are mega churches that have nothing in common with him and what they preach or whatever. Well, little in common. The thing they all have in common is that, well, most of the mega churches, there, there are, I'm sure, some blessed exceptions, but Rick Warren wouldn't be exempt from this. The thing they, most of them have in common is they follow pragmatic methods of, of, church growth and church leadership philosophy and that's why they can all get together and pat one another on the back because although they may disagree on the gospel they treat the gospel almost as if it's a secondary issue what binds right. them all together is their methodology right no, right exactly their their unity is in their methodology it doesn't matter what you confess doctrinally as long as you have the the same methodology as they do then they're going to promote you and talk well about you and in you, your pastor when you hit a particular number of people that have come to your church over a short amount of time that that automatically launches you into mega stardom within their group because it's all about the methodologically how you can grow uh, your church quickly and and substantially yeah, in fact, you remind me of something. Uh, uh, John MacArthur has a book that deals with the whole pragmatism thing. It's called um, uh, Ashamed of the Gospel. And, and about two years ago, he did it. It's a 10, 15-year-old book, but it still pretty much deals with some of the very same trends that are, are going on in spades today. And so uh, he, he revised the book and added a bit to it about two or three years ago. And in that book, near the beginning of it, he quotes someone. I can't... I can't for sure remember, but I think it's Elmer Towns uh, who says who says this very thing. And Towns isn't saying it as a criticism. He's he's observing that this is just in fact I think he sounds like he's in favor of it. And he's observing that this is the way church ministry philosophy has changed. He says it used to be that what bound groups of churches and denominations together was a common doctrinal statement. He says now what they all have in common is a is a is a philosophy of ministry basically hmm. their their approach to church growth and and ministry it's the pragmatic thing right and you know he's candid about that yeah. and that's that's the world in which rick warren travels and really is looked to as a leader i don't know how he can disavow the entire mega church movement Right, and say that nothing Oz guinness has to say uh, critical of that movement applies to saddleback well, it clearly does. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And to the, some of the church plants associated with uh, Saddleback, where they they credit Rick Warren as the guy who inspired them to do church the way they're doing it. Okay, we are now going to pause here, and we're going to pick up the conversation on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So. What did you think? I, you know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.